Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text from the Holy Gospel, these words, as he, Jesus, was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they said, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. Contemporary writer Leroy Brownlow has said, There are times when silence has the loudest voice. And he's right, isn't he? It's true. Has it ever happened to you when you've received from someone else the silent treatment? Perhaps it's from a spouse or a parent or a friend, the silent treatment, more painful than many things. To a spouse, it can be more crushing than angry words, as indicated by the quote, spiteful words can hurt your feelings, but silence breaks the heart. And to the child, silence can be more painful than a swat across the posterior. And Luther knew that well. It's even said that when one of his sons disobeyed, acted rudely, that Luther refused to talk to his son for two or three days or even to recognize his presence in the room, an experience that his son did not want to have repeated again because it was more painful than had he received a swat or two. And back in 1950, novelist and educator Gloria Naylor spoke of the special value of silence, and she said, quote, There's a time for silence. There's a time to let go and allow people to hurl themselves into their own destiny, and a time to prepare then to pick up the pieces when it's all over. And isn't that at least in part what our text for today is really all about? For well over four centuries prior to today's text, God had indeed been silent. For well over 400 years, he would not speak through prophets as he had so commonly and so faithfully done in times past. For 400 years, he remained silent. 400 years of deafening silence during which he allowed his people to hurl themselves down the path of their own obstinate resistance to his word and to his will that he had made so plain through the prophets that he had sent to them in ancient Judah and Israel. But they ignored that word. They indeed came to the point of even despising that word. And so God let them go their own way. He remained silent. He did not speak to them in order that they might see for themselves where their sin and their sinful choices would take them. So they could see for themselves what their lives would become without the Lord at the helm of the ship as they would go about pilotless and the storms of the sea. And so it was that before the 400 years of silence that God had spoken, as we heard today in the Old Testament lesson that God had spoken through the young prophet Jeremiah and told Jeremiah to tell the people of this impending destruction that was going to come upon Jerusalem and the consequential silence of God that would also follow it. And so 
He says in the chapter before today's text, This city, God says, has aroused my anger and my wrath from the day that it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all of the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they've done to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have all turned their backs to me instead of their faces. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive my instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name, and they thus defile it. Those are the words of the Lord from the chapter right before our text for today. That and so much more. Words of warning, words of impending doom, words given to the prophet Jeremiah to speak to a people who simply were refusing to listen to God. And do you know where Jeremiah was, by the way, when he received this word from God to speak to the people? He was sitting in a prison cell. Young man sitting in a prison cell, a cell into which he had been placed not by the oncoming King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians who would hold them all captive in due time. No, not at all, but rather by his own king, by King Zedekiah who had imprisoned him for daring to prophesy against Judah. How dare you prophesy against us? And so it was his own king that put him into jail. You see, sin will, after a time of warning unheeded, sin will silence God. Sin will silence him as he, in essence, says, All right, have it your own way. Go your own path. And he allows sin to carry the impenitent sinner ever closer to the abyss from which there is no return. And why does he do it? Why does God allow all of this to happen? He does so in order that the impenitent sinner might see for himself the narthex of hell, if you will. The entryway to the horrors that would be his were it not that God intervened graciously to let him see what his doom would indeed be, where his sins ultimately would take him. And so it was that God allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed and God allowed its inhabitants to be taken far away into their Babylonian captivity The people, because of their own sin, because of their own obstinate refusal to acknowledge their sin, to confess their sin, and to repent of their sin, and their obstinate refusal to to see God as being their salvation from their sin, they plunge themselves into the trouble that they have, and they lose nearly everything that has been given them and has given any meaning to their lives. They lose their temple and its priesthood. They lose their city and its king. They even lose their homes and their families. Is it any wonder then that when it happened, God seemed to be either absent to them or if he is present, They must have thought that he was present to punish them, and they certainly hoped it was the former rather than the latter. Whatever, it wouldn't be long, and God would for four long centuries remain silent 
silent for generations, but not quite yet. Not quite yet. Not before giving his people hope. Hope in a future, hope in a promise, a word of promise, a word of hope, namely the word of Jeremiah in the Old Testament reading that we heard for today, words of Advent hope, coming hope, words of Advent promises of one who would come to deliver them from what they had done to themselves. And so, as we heard in the Old Testament lesson, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, and in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, was setting before his people the promise with a large P and the hope with a large H, which would sustain them during their time of sin-caused and self-imposed captivity. A captivity during which they would learn ever so painfully that sin has its consequences. And we've learned that lesson too in the course of our own days, haven't we? That sin indeed does have its consequences. It did for the generation of ancient Israel and for Judah that turned its back upon God rather than its faces toward him. And it still does today as people, as we ourselves, all too often, sinfully turn our backs toward God. Pursuing our own earthborn and our earthbound pleasures rather than turning our faces to him. That we might learn from him and of him and be cleansed and be forgiven by him and, and have his face shine upon us. Backs turn to God rather than faces. It happens in a hundred and more ways as we race off here and we rush off there so busied with our work or our play that there's little or no time for him on our day as we pack him away for another week or perhaps for another month or even for another season of the church year. Backs turn to God rather than faces as even on the Lord's day we who know where he has promised to come with us and where he has promised to meet us and where he has promised to speak to us and where he's promised to feed us, we still attempt to excuse and absolve ourselves for neglecting the very word and sacrament by which he would absolve us. Backs turn to God rather than faces as we are more concerned about being politically correct and socially acceptable than we are about being biblically consistent and seeing sin for what sin is and calling sin, sin. Backs turn to God rather than faces when we concede that which is not ours to concede, namely the doctrines of Scripture as expounded in the creeds and the confessions of the church, the faith that we falter to defend, though so many were faithful unto death, and confessing that same faith before us. Our backs turn to God rather than faces 
as we piously think ourselves righteous because of what we do on Sunday and because of what we don't do on Monday and Tuesday and the rest of the week, when in reality the only righteousness that any of us has before the face of God is to be found in the bloodied face and the nail-pierced hands and feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the hope and the promise that we in our day have, just as the people in days of old had? Isn't that the promise that was God-inspired for Jeremiah, the prophecy when he said, I will come and I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David? Wasn't then Jeremiah speaking of, indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ? Wasn't he speaking prophetically of Christ, who is that righteous branch that has sprung up from the root of David? And for us all, the one that's called the Lord is our righteousness, the Lord who imputed, who credited our sin to himself and his righteousness to us. And in that great exchange, which St. Paul speaks about so beautifully, when he said, he that knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we then might be the righteousness of God. Indeed, Jesus was. Indeed, Jesus is. And that's why God was silent for 400 years before Christ's coming. As the writer of Hebrews puts it so well in his opening sentence of his epistle, he says, Long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by and through his Son. God's extended silence was but the divine prelude to his most important speaking of all through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his Son, a prelude of pregnant Silence. A silence that you just experienced. A pregnant silence as you waited and wondered what would be said next. And that's what God was doing during this 400 years of silence. It was a pregnant silence whereby he remained silent in order that when he did then speak, the people would most certainly listen. And so it was that when the time came for God to speak again, when the Christ would be born, that the heavens opened and the angels themselves sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And as we heard also in today's gospel lesson, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and both heaven and earth join together in a chorus that welcomes the righteous branch when he comes. A silence broken by the angels, a silence broken by God's people. Finally, when he came, the Pharisees we heard in today's gospel tried to silence it all by saying to Jesus, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if these were silent, the very stones themselves would cry out because the righteous one has come. God's self-imposed silence was about to be broken not merely by words from his lips but also by divine deeds of sacrifice and salvation which would put down our sin and put down our death and put down Satan's hell and all of his minions forever. As prophesied by Jeremiah of old, Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness, silenced all that would have eternally silenced you from the first to the last of sinners, from the, the least to the greatest of our sins, silenced all by Christ. 
And speaking of Christ silencing the greatest of sins, in 1966, Japanese novelist Shosaku Endo wrote an interesting historical fiction entitled Shinmoku, which translated means silence, believed by some critics to be one of the finest novels of the 20th century. It's a story of a fictional Jesuit missionary whose name is Sebastio Rodriguez, who was sent to Japan in order to encourage the fledgling Christian church there and to investigate reports that his mentor, a father Fiera, has committed apostasy and has fallen away from the faith. Father Rodriguez and his companion, Father Francisco Garpe, arrive in Japan in 1638. There they find the local Christian population has been driven underground and are thus called Kakuri Karishitan, or hidden Christians, is a name that they then have, hidden Christians. Hidden Christians which are sought out by the security officials of the shoguns who force suspected Christians to trample on Fumi. Fumi, a crudely crafted image of Christ. If you were suspected to be a Christian, you had to trample on Fumi. And those who refuse to do so are imprisoned, and they're eventually killed by Anazuri, which is being hung upside down over a pit that's filled with the bodies of other executed Christians who have been slowly bled to death before you. The novel relates the trials of these hidden Christians and the interesting hardship that was suffered by Father Rodriguez as Morris learned about the circumstances of his mentor's apostasy. And finally, as the novel reaches its end, Rodriguez is himself betrayed by a Judas-like character. He's arrested. He's commanded to trample underfoot a Fumi, the crudely carved image of Christ. And here's what the author records. He says, the face of the Fumi, this crudely carved picture of Christ, the face of the Fumi was different from that on which the priest had gazed so often in Portugal, in Rome, in Goa, in Macau. It was not the Christ whose face was filled with majesty and glory. Neither was it a face made beautiful by endurance to pain. Nor was it a face with strength of will that had resisted temptation. The face of the crucified man who then lay at his feet in the Fumi was sunken and it was utterly exhausted. The sorrow it had gazed up at him as the eyes spoke appealing to him and said, trample, trample me. This is why I came, to be trampled upon by you. An odd twist to the end of the novel. An uncomfortable twist that seems to encourage apostasy and the denial of Christ in the face of torture and death something which Christ's prophets and his apostles and his confessors throughout the ages certainly would not and did not do, so many lives of martyrdom attesting to that fact. And yet, if understood in a slightly different way, with the emphasis being upon Christ and what he came to do rather than upon the priest and what he might or might not do, it is certainly true. Christ came to be trampled upon by the worst sins of the worst sinners, and that includes the sin of denial too. 
a sin confessed, which will, because of Christ, be sin forgiven, and none less than St. Peter himself knows that to be true. Jesus Christ came for us all to be all for us that God's holiness requires us to be. And that's why with Jeremiah of old, we call him the Lord, our righteousness. That's why with the people of Jerusalem of so long ago, we welcome him still in his very body and his blood. And we sing today what they sang so many yesterdays ago, Hosanna. Blessed is he who still comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And that's why we begin the Advent season with that prayer and also with this Advent call. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Hosanna, come to save us. Come to save us all. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.